0: This is Dalio's Principles, a Philosophical Examination, the unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. And you can follow us on Twitter. Micah is at Bays, all one word, and I am at John Sextro, all one word. And now, this week's episode. I'm Micah Bays. I'm John Sextro, and we're back here with Dalio's Principles, a Philosophical Examination. In our episode today, Micah, we're going to be talking about principle 3.2 from the book and it's called, or it says, Practice Radical open-mindedness, which is very much um, <laughs> on theme with, uh, with section three anyway, and, and uh, high level principle number three, which is to be radically open-minded. So great, this is this sort of starts to get right into the heart of the matter and is giving us an- advice gives us some sub-level principles that we can use to practice radical open-mindedness and there are seven of them and you can find them in the book you can find them online if you don't have the book they're out there uh, freely available and uh, I I won't, I won't read them to you because I feel like that's maybe stealing Ray's words from him but we're gonna we're gonna talk definitely talk about them and I thought Micah that that best if we sort of start with a discussion of, of the why. And I don't know that we really did that in our last episode where we began talking about open-mindedness. So I, I thought maybe we could spend a little bit more time in our episode today looking at the motivation and maybe what's behind this. So I wanted to start with you and say, why do you think? Uh, what's, the, what's the philosophy that you see? behind practicing open-mindedness yeah i mean certainly i think
1: it's just the recognition you could be wrong about something (laughs) and if you are wrong about something the seemingly the only way to get the correct view of something right get the truth is to be willing to listen to alternatives to your current view of things right your current perspective um how you understand
0: things to be yeah i think ray even says in the in the book, you are more than likely wrong (laughs) (laughs) about a lot of, a lot of things. Uh, So having that uh, position that you're, or feeling like you need to be right all of the time is just a very, very high bar to try and live up to. Right.
1: And, you know, for Ray, you know, certainly the where this principle comes to play or, you know, what motivated Ray to accept this principle or develop this principle for himself, right. was back in the 1980s. We talked about this, you know, early on when in the book um when we were just you know, in the earlier episodes we were discussing the um autobiographical portion where he talked about you know in the 1980s looking at the economy and he thought it was a sure thing that there was going to be a recession and he had gained some notoriety prior to that and so congress actually you know had him come and speak and you know he said my paraphrase here but effectively you know without without a doubt there's going to be a recession and it turned out he was wrong, and he wanted to avoid it. he wanted to avoid that from ever happening again because he lost a lot of business and so the question for him was, well, you know how did I get that so wrong and one of the things he realized was that he hadn't really been taking in the opinions of others as he came to that decision, and so he's wanting to be more open minded so that he can see other alternative ways of looking at the data um, or maybe other alternatives as to what data to be looking at so that he can have an increase his chance of getting the right answer at getting at the truth of, you know, in this case, what the economy is actually going to do.
0: If I recall, he was, he shared at that point in the, in the early, um, in, in the opening of the book, he shared that he was much more worried about him being right, that his view was right rather than that. He had the actual right answer or the, the right prediction. Isn't that how you remember it, Micah, that he was more worried about the fact that it was, it was his point of view that was the right one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably something we could probably even take into our, you know, when we go into a meeting with other people at work and, you know, maybe in advance of the meeting, you've got, you already have an opinion formed, which totally understandable and, you know, typical and probably the way it should be. You have some opinion about the way things about the decision that should be made in the meeting. But if you go into that meeting with the goal of, okay, I believe this is what we should do. So I'm going to make it my goal in the meeting to make that the end result. Then you're not practicing open mindedness. I think, you know, for Ray, what open mindedness would look like is to go into that meeting and say, okay, here's other people who are in this meeting. They have some different perspectives. They might have some different data than I do. Um, I have my current opinion about what should be done but I want to hear them out. I want to hear what all the other data is. I want to hear what the other perspectives are. And then at the end of the meeting, right? The goal should be, let's get, let's make the decision that's best supported by the data. Don't make it the goal of the meeting to get your currently held opinion to be the one that's accepted by everybody.
0: I think you make a very important point there. And I just want to pause on it for a second and and talk a little bit more about it because i often believe that many people not everybody but many people go into a meeting like that they go into a meeting thinking that their their approach is going to be to put forward their idea because of course they believe it's it's a good idea and i would never argue with anyone about the fact that they believe their idea is a good idea you know obviously i think that's the case and that but they go in there with the intention to argue for their idea, to put forth the idea and then argue for it and try to build build support for the idea. And what you're suggesting is really different than that and what Ray is is suggesting. And what you're reinforcing here is instead of taking that approach when you're going into something like this, it doesn't have to be a meeting. It can be any sort of a situation where you're working with a group of people and you're you're trying to decide something or you're trying to choose a path forward and instead approach it from the perspective of i trust the other people around me they they again like you said they're probably smart they definitely have different perspectives than i have and what i want to do is along with my fellow coworkers or whoever they are this this group that i'm coming together with that i want i want to contribute into my idea into the pool of knowledge that this group of people is bringing together so that we as a group can can come to an agreement on what is the best idea and, and have that have that really um, important dialogue and important conversation that helps us figure that out that helps us figure out which is the really great idea, which is the right idea, which is the idea or the suggestion that's going to best solve the problem, that's going to be the best path forward, that's going to whatever the case may be, that's going to do for us what we intend to do from having the discussion. And approach it from that perspective is wanting to contribute uh, and wanting to help get to the best solution rather than taking the approach of, I need to be right. I need to argue for my point. I think that's a real mind shift for people, Micah, don't you think?
1: Yeah. Um and you know, as a facilitator, you know, I facilitate meetings. I try and I've been trying to think lately about, you know, how it is I can get people to take that perspective, you know, whether it's just something I say at the beginning of the meeting and, you know, just kind of changes everyone's perspective. Um yeah, I'm not sure the best way to go about that, but I do think it would definitely change meetings quite a bit.
0: Well, and I think one of the ways to go about it is to follow some of these sub-principles in here, you know, not worrying about looking good. Um, and and of course, recognizing that decision-making is is this two-step process, which is just sort of what I had started to describe. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about that in this context, because I think we have some things to say. But before we move on to talking about that, Two step process, Mike, is there anything more to cover in terms of like the philosophy behind some of this, and I know that there's a lot of <laughs> a lot out there on on the philosophy behind some of this, so I just want to open it up for some of that
1: yeah, so you know one interesting thing just from philosophy um, just more of a food for thought thing, maybe not extremely practical, but uh, just food for thought, something to kind of stimulate your mind a little bit. We might have this question, right? If I could be wrong about some things, and so I'm seeking help from others, couldn't I also be wrong about their advice? If I don't know what the truth is about something, how is it that when I ask other people, I can know that I've gotten the truth from them, right? How do I know whether what they've told me is true, or couldn't it also be false? Plato wrote a book called The Mino, and there's... This interesting claim by Socrates, now whether it was actually Socrates himself or if this was just Plato putting his words in the mouth of Socrates, uh, I'm not sure what the scholarship is on that, but not too important for this, our purposes. The interesting thing was that Socrates made this claim. He said, a man cannot search either for what he knows or for what he does not know. He cannot search for what he knows since he knows it. There is no need to search, nor for what he does not know, for he does not know what to look for, right? So that's kind of the idea of, well, look, if I could be wrong about something, apparently I don't know already what that thing is or what it should look like or what it, yeah, I don't already know what that thing is. And so then how would I know when I found it? Plato was teaching this kind of odd idea that we don't ever should ever learn anything. We only just have to remember Everything. It's almost like we already have all truths in our mind and we just have to somehow rem- be remembered of them or be reminded of them or remember it in some way.
0: That's interesting. It's it's both um simple but very complex at the same time. Like it's it's a it's sort of a common sense statement, but just very deep all at the right. same time. And it plays very much into what we're talking about. And it's obviously why you brought it up, but you know, how do I know, how do I assess someone else and what they know about a thing or, um, what their expertise is? I sort of have to trust them. Don't I?
1: Perhaps, you know, um, in some cases there will be trust involved and then we'll talk about, maybe there's another way you can come to know something without just trusting someone else. Just an illustration of this idea of how could you search for something that you know, you don't know what it is. I was listening to a podcast that had um a philosopher. Her name is Agnes Callard. Uh if you are on Twitter, you should definitely follow her. She's just a very interesting uh follow. She's really good about doing philosophy via Twitter. And she's I think she does it in a very accessible way, where even if you don't have a philosophy background, you'd be able to follow a lot of what she's talking about. And so I was listening to this podcast that had featured her. And she was talking about the Mino. Well, that night I went home and you know, I've got three kids and my middle daughter, she's four. She said, Hey, let's play hide and seek, in the sense of uh, she was gonna hide something and then I would go and try and find it. You know, not herself where you know she would go hide and I try to find her, but she was gonna hide something. She said, I'm not gonna tell you what it is. Now go and find it. And I was like, <laughs> wow. uh, How am I gonna find it, right? If I don't know what it is. <laughs> And so I was like, oh, this is the whole thing uh, that Amino's talking about. Now, I actually don't buy into the whole, we only remember things, we never learn anything. But it, it's just kind of a food for thought kind of thing. But I, I think in part what it draws out is that the way in which we can rely on other people for our decision making, right, when we get input from them. One, there are cases where it's just trust, right? where you don't have the time or let's say the skill or the knowledge to fully examine what they say. For example, sometimes when you go to the doctor, they just tell you something and you believe it based on their word. But of course, you, know, you presumably you base it on their education and their reputation and those sorts of things, right? There's a good reason to think that given the schooling they went through, they know what they're talking about, right? So you can trust them.
0: My Google searches aren't equivalent. To a, a medical degree? Probably not. <laughs> Depends okay. what you're
1: searching, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there are times where you do have to just trust someone. Now, of course, there's a question, well, when is it appropriate to trust? And even when you can, you might say legitimately trust someone, that's, that doesn't bring you certainty they could be wrong right doctors are wrong ideally you know, they would have it gives you more more likelihood that they would be right than wrong uh, and you know this is where you know ray talks about the notion of believability talking about certain people have knowledge in certain areas and have proven themselves through success and so on some people are more believable about some things than others if what you have to do is just trust someone right you can't see the truth for yourself then you want to assess how believable they are.
0: Yeah. Ray, so far in the book, hasn't talked much about this believability. And, and I know you and I both have read the book extensively. It's hard for me. It's, it's hard to, for me to have, feel like we can have these, some of these conversations without getting into this concept of, of believability. And uh, I just wanted to point that out. I think it's, it's, it makes it, I think, difficult to have some of these conversations given the fact that it the the this concept of believability and, and how to figure out who's believable in certain topics just really hasn't been fully laid out for us yet. Gotcha. So do you want to leave this out? No, not at all. No. I, I think this is a, an integral part of this conversation. I, I just am making a point here that for everyone, for our listeners included, that you know, I think it's it's something that t- to be coming more about believability, um, and and we're just starting to s- starting to push on some of the edges of it here as as we're getting into it. But keep in mind, or if if listeners want to, they can read ahead, jump ahead in the book, go take a look more at what believability is. I I just think it's very integral to to a lot of these different concepts.
1: Right. Yep. Yeah. So you know the. When you're relying on others or when you're getting the input of others for your decision making, you know, sometimes you just rely on their input via trust, right? They tell you that something is true and they can't prove it to you. And so you just go, okay, they have some reason to, you know, know that thing. And so I'm going to believe them about that. But there's also, right, the ability that someone may know something that you don't know, but they're also able to demonstrate it to you. And so in that case, you wouldn't have to just trust them, right? You could then come to might say, really know it yourself. Simple cases of math, right? Where thinking of like teaching my daughter math or something where she doesn't know the answer of what is four plus five. Now I could tell her nine and she could believe, oh, nine's the answer and she could just rely on trust. But I could also give some kind of demonstration to her, right? And then she could see that that is true, right? I could get like, 10 beads or something or nine beads break it up in a group of four and group of five and then show her how they become nine. When you put them together, that's obviously a very simple case, but when you're getting the input of others, I'm just pointing out, you don't always have to rely on trust. There are some cases where they can show you the information, show you the data and you can come to see it's true based on that demonstration as well.
0: I like that. And that plays very much into, I think the seventh, um, seventh sub principle that's in part of part of this, uh, mid-level principle is, is, is the advice from Ray to often take the approach of, of being a seeker, someone seeking knowledge, someone that's, that's ready to learn, ready to be educated on something, uh, especially in areas where you're having that conversation, you're having that dialogue with others. And if you come at a- come at it from the perspective of, I'm asking questions because I want to learn. I want to learn about your perspective. And and I just want to learn more about the thing which we're talking about. That's a much better conversation. That's a much more um, productive way to go about having this conversation rather than it being an an argument per se, right? Saying going back and forth about, well, what about this? And what about that? Where if you're approaching it from the perspective of teach me, help educate me, you know, tell me uh, what your thinking is, tell me, show me how to take the four and put the five together with it and get the nine, you know, going through that, that the philosophy behind it, the, uh, the technical circumstances behind it, the. The engineering behind it, the science behind it, the math behind it, whatever it is, the philosophy, I think I already said philosophy, but all those things, it's like if you approach it from that perspective, that's being open-minded, that's not being argumentative. So I think that's just a very important way to approach these these conversations, and it lowers that um, antagonistic side of some of these tough conversations. We operate the podcast on the value-for-value value model. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, visit our website at daliosprinciples.fireside.fm donate. You can also help us grow by promoting us on social media. So get out there and tell all of your friends about the podcast and help us spread the word. And now, back to the show. Right. I
1: think yeah, especially if people see that you're willing to change your mind, they don't see it as two people going at it, trying to prove that they're right. They're two people both ideally, hopefully trying to figure out what the truth is. And so, yeah, they may counter something that the other person says, but only in the hopes of getting at the truth because they think, well, maybe the other person didn't account for this piece of information. And so, if they knew about it, maybe they would change their mind. Yeah, you know, just do that back and forth process. Hopefully, they'll arrive at what the truth is.
0: Okay, so should we talk? I, we talked, I think, a little bit about the two-step process. I started to sort of go through it um, before we before we reflected on some of this philosophy. So, just to maybe touch on it again here quickly, and then we can move on. That two-step process is you know contributing that information, and then using uh, the combined con- contribution of everyone to come to a decision. Micah, is there anything more to add into uh, a discussion about that two-step process for decision-making?
1: Yeah, I think the only thing I would add, and I'm, I know I'm being pedantic here, um, I'm really good at that, but uh, you know, he Ray, right, says the two-step process is first, you take in all relevant information, and then the second step is to decide. And so as far as the taking in all relevant information, uh, you know, my only point would just be that, you know, this probably doesn't, he probably doesn't mean all information, right? We only have so much time, uh, in our lives (laughs) and only, only so much time that we can devote to different decisions. And so I think, you know, there does have to be some practical consideration about what's the likely payoff of. Researching or getting more information. Once you get enough information that it looks like okay, this is a pretty solid decision, you know, then you can maybe go forward. Even though you maybe know you don't have all possible information, there's a a guide for how to decide when to decide. A couple of the considerations. Right, uh, the way they, the way I've seen it, a couple of places is think of it like a x and a y axis, and on, let's say the x axis, you have the question of how important is the decision? And then the other on the y-axis is how reversible is the decision? If a decision is extremely important and it's irreversible in the sense that, well, once you make it, you can't go back, you can't change it. Those are presumably some decisions that you need to put as much time into as you can. But if the decision is not important at all or minimally important, and it's very reversible in the sense that, hey, if you make the decision, you see that it apparently wasn't a good decision and you can just change what that decision was. then again, not too much of a reason to spend a whole lot of resources trying to figure out what the best decision is. So that's certainly not the only consider those aren't the only considerations in deciding when to decide, but I found that helpful, you know, something to think about because um, I know my tendency is to do too much research. You know, I want to just look, research and research and find I ideally would find all the information before I make a decision. But of course that comes at a cost, right? Because as long as you delay the decision, you're delaying any potential effectiveness, you know, any gain that comes from making that decision.
0: Yeah. We also talk a lot about, I, I do anyway, with, uh, with groups that I work with about the last responsible moment for making a decision that, that, last, the last responsible moment is the best time to make the decision and the way we define it. And it plays very much into what you were talking about, Micah, uh, the flexibility of the decision. Can the decision be, can, you know, can you redo the decision? What, what, what are the implications for making the decision? It's like, you want to make the decision at the point at which you're about to cross that threshold from, we missed the opportunity if we don't make the decision now, you know a decision gets made for us or, or um, for, for lack of making a decision. And it's not it's at that point at which it's going to be irreversible, meaning we can't go back. It, we can't reasonably go back and undo that decision. That's the last responsible moment. And we want to make sure we have as much information as we can, that we've given ourselves plenty of flexibility to collect information, more information as it's necessary. And then make that decision right before we need to and right before we cross that point from responsible into irresponsible for not having made the decision. So the more you can, it, and it, it gets into, you know, you can get into this analysis paralysis where you're just spending too much time thinking about it, spending too much time collecting information. Uh, but it drives you to that point where it's the right time to make the decision given all of those circumstances. So let's move on to talking about looking good because, again, that's a a key point here in that we really are, should be worried more about achieving the collective good, accomplishing our collective goal, rather than us individually looking good. And th- there, there seems to be some things that are maybe at odds with, with each other here. But I think part of this is a recognition that you're going to get the credit or you're not going to get credit if it's not your idea that is the one that is chosen or it's not your idea that is the one that is used. It has been my experience that it is very infrequent that someone even remembers who in the heck came up with any sort of an idea that ended ended in an outcome. And it's more about the fact that you got the outcome that you intended and that we as a collective group were successful. So I'm wondering, Michael, what your thoughts are on this worrying about looking good.
1: Partly, I guess, you know, what I was thinking about is why is it that people think it's more important to look like you have all the answers, right? Ray talks about this, that people tend to believe that, you know, the great people, uh, that's my paraphrase, I think, you know, the experts know everything. They have all the knowledge. Um you're right, that they don't make mistakes. Probably think about well, why is that? Why do we think that's the case? I mean, I think John, you and I talked about just in growing up, you and I both talked about how we uh thought kind of everyone else had things figured out, you know, but we didn't have it figured out.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely true.
1: Yeah, and, I, and I'm trying to think about what might cause that. And you know, in part and then I'm thinking just about in the business context, why might we think that? And in the business context, I can see, I wonder how much of that is that people who are knowledgeable or who are higher ups, right? Which I realize there's a distinction there. They may not always be honest about what they don't know, right? So they put off this air that they know things, right? They're not ignorant. Then if what you see is that other people who are in positions of power or leadership, if they act as though they know everything, if they don't appear to not know, <laughs> you may think, oh, well, if I'm going to be like them, then I need to know everything as well. So I can't, you might say, let other people know that I don't know, because then that's going to look bad.
0: It's interesting because time and again, we see advice from, uh, from professional leaders, from very successful leaders, that the way to be a great leader, the way to be a successful leader is not to think that everything is on your shoulders that you always have to have the right answer that what it's really about is surrounding yourself with a group of smart people that you can rely on that are the people that you know are going to be willing to disagree with you you know in a respectful way they're going to be willing to disagree with you they're going to be willing to tell you when you're wrong and they're going to be willing to advise you on their areas of expertise and that those are the things that make a great leader it's not an individual Always relying on their own knowledge, information, and experience uh, to be successful,
1: I actually saw this just in the last week or two. We were having a meeting between some of my some other managers that were on my you might say management level, and our upper managers were talking with us, and one of the upper managers joked i guess I mean he was serious, but um he was Kind of joking about how, you know, he doesn't have everything understood. You know, there's a lot of times when he goes into a meeting with someone, he doesn't have it figured out about how that meeting is going to go. And, you know, he was essentially being honest, like just saying, you know, just because you go into management doesn't mean that you have everything figured out. And, you know, that honesty, you know, that transparency, I saw how that impacted me just with my, the people who are quote unquote underneath me, you know, in my management. It made it easier made it even easier to be transparent with them and say, oh, okay, I don't know that thing. You know, Let me look into it for you. In other words, I think what helped me was it showed that, at least in our company, um, and I already knew this, but just seeing the example was great. In our company, we don't expect managers to know everything, nor especially to act as though they do, to be humble about what they do know or don't know, and then be concerned more about getting the right answers. But you know I'm just thinking about how that plays in, you know, and the different types of managers that people have and the example that they set for them, that can certainly influence their perception of what they should know or shouldn't know, or what they should admit to knowing or not knowing. And you know I guess you know another thing was you know I've a reason another reason is people may not be so concerned about looking good in the sense of they don't necessarily care about being wrong but what they are concerned about is how other people are going to treat them if they're wrong. You know, if you're in a workplace that doesn't allow you to make mistakes, you may try and hide your ignorance just because of the consequences of not knowing, right? And how others might treat you as a result, right? You might worry, oh, am I going to get demoted or, you know, fired if, you know, I don't know everything.
0: That's a great point, and it's a reminder to you and I, I think that our experiences, uh, <laughs> the culture our company has, which we never really talk about, and, and this is not intended to try and be, um, have it. This has nothing to do with uh, with our company or the culture at that company. We we just are lucky, I think, and in, in in the fact that we have that. But we need to be reminded that not everyone has the same experience as us. Micah, you and I, because we sort of maybe live a little bit of a sheltered life, and that we live in that culture, work in that culture. So this is something that is a real circumstance, a real situation where being wrong in organizations can can be very detrimental to your career. Can, if nothing else, have a have a negative impact, uh, maybe on your advancement or your career. So I think we're not we're not trying to advise people that, uh, to, to ignore any of that. You have to work within the circumstances that you're facing with, you know, how it is where you work. Um, but ideally, you know, I think, and the way Ray is, is saying this is that you would be working in a culture or you would be, um, behaving in a culture or community where that is not being wrong uh, offering your advice and being and or your perspective and determining later that that wasn't the best approach is not held against you and you're encouraged to share your perspective you're encouraged to share your point of view without having that having that bar placed upon you that says only do it when you're absolutely certain that you're going to be 100% right so i think we just need to continue to remind ourselves uh, that we maybe have it better than, than others and, and be respectful of other people's circumstances as well.
1: Right. Yeah, I think I'm really just reiterating what you've just said, but I think it's a good point that, you know, so this principle, right, about don't worry about looking good, worry about achieving your goal, right? If that was some kind of, might say, unqualified principle, principle, it's always a universal principle, it's always true, right? I think in certain circumstances, certain contexts, right, as you were talking about, this could have n- pretty serious negative ramifications for someone it may be that given your context you may have to be a little bit more um careful in revealing you might say or admitting ignorance right i certainly wouldn't encourage you to go around lying but there are some i think workplaces where you could be open and honest about hey here's the things i don't know right and just be totally open about that and it'd be well received people would Think, okay, yeah, let's figure this out together. Other companies, you might find that you've got to kind of be a little more discretion, you know, show a little more discretion in what things you admit to not knowing just for you know job preservation. And then, you know, just one other kind of side thing here is just kind of a personal reflection. You know, I think for myself, one thing I've found is that it's harder for me to admit ignorance with people I don't know, where I haven't, you might say, built a track record with them. That on the whole, I'm competent, (laughs) you know, so if I'm in a meeting with people who I don't know, I can be, you might say overly concerned about not sharing what I don't know or looking like I don't know something. Whereas if I'm working with my team, people who I work with day in and day out and who on the whole kind of know what my capabilities and knowledge is, I'm not concerned about admitting ignorance because, you know, I think they'll see, oh, that's a, not a one-off, but they know I'm not incompetent. I'm capable of doing my job. And that's just a particular area I don't have knowledge around, but I don't have that same comfort level with a new group.
0: That makes sense. And, and I completely understand that. I'll challenge you a little bit, Micah, and say that, um, I think that's something maybe you could work on because you, you should be able to approach it in the same way, regardless of your level of comfort, Uh, level of already established, uh, trust and, and, and comfort that comfort comes from the relationships that you've already built with those people. But I think being again, comfortable and, and being able to say, I don't know, or being able to admit to new people, especially new people that I can give you my advice or I can give you my opinion, but I want to preface that by saying that I'm not an expert in this area. I think that shows a a ton of humility and is not something that, that people would generally think poorly of you for. I think that they would very much look at that as a positive trait in you and see that you're, you're not trying to be a know-it-all. You're not showing up trying to be the smartest guy in the room Smartest person in the room. You're uh, you're being honest. You're being humble, um, and you're you're showing up in a way where you want to contribute, but you you want to do it in a good way. You want to do it in a way that's not going to harm the group. So I know it's hard, <laughs> and and I recognize that, and that's why I say I put it there for you as sort of a challenge to say this might be something that you can do better at, improve at in yeah. the future.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um, it's actually something that I have set a goal for myself to improve in, um, you know, just in general, yeah, participating more in meetings where, you know, I don't have as much information, um, or as much knowledge or much, uh, as much, as much knowledge about the subject matter, especially relative to other people in the room.
0: I, I, I am in all kinds of meetings and with all kinds of, um, various levels of people and organizations from, you know, from from individual contributors all the way up to C level executives and companies, and one of the one of the most humble things I've seen people do is sort of what I described, where they'll they'll start off uh, providing their comment by saying, "You know, I'm going to give you my opinion. Please tell me if you feel differently, or please help me help me make help me understand where this might be wrong." And they sort of preface their comment with that in a way that they're demonstrating that humility. And then they're also inviting the the rest of the group to say, help me. I don't think I know everything. I don't think I have, uh, that I'm always right or that my opinion always is the best opinion. And I'm, I'm starting off by sharing my opinion, by saying, I invite you, uh, to share your opinion. I invite you to tell me what's wrong about my opinion. You know, so you're inviting that, uh, and by inviting that, you're really showing that humility. But you're also you're you're preparing the way for people to discuss to to disagree in a in a safe way, and that's important. It, whether you're an individual contributor or you're that you know you're the CEO of a big company, if you can do that, that's just very uh, a very humble way to engage. So, segueing from humility, there's also concept of empathy. And I think those two things sort of very much go together. Uh, you are, you're able to be humble because you're able to empathize with the fact that there you know, other people have perspectives too. So, um, Michael, why do you think empathy is so important when we're considering things from someone else's perspective?
1: Yeah. So I think this idea of empathy, um, is really pretty interesting. You know, I think a lot of times we think with deliberation and decision-making You know, we can just rely on, you might say cold hard facts. That's all we need in order to make good decisions. There's a philosopher, one of my favorite philosophers. His name is Alistair McIntyre. He wrote a book called dependent rational animals, why human beings need the virtues. So here he's, uh, sees himself as being in line with Aristotle in the sense that, you know, Aristotle talks about human beings as being, you know, like our species in a sense is rational animal, right? There's, all sorts of animals out there, but we are rational animals. And one thing that McIntyre points out here, not that Aristotle would disagree, but what one thing he draws on is this idea that we are dependent, rational animals in the sense that in order for you to flourish in order to you, for you to live well, that flourishing depends on other people. None of us are self-made men, self-made people, right? Obviously just even from birth, You're dependent on your parents and so on. Uh, But even beyond that, as you navigate through the business world, um, as you navigate through just relationships in general, you're dependent upon other people. And one of the ways in which we're dependent on other people is for truth. When you recognize that you could be wrong about something, you need other people to be able to help you see what the truth is. And, one of the things McIntyre points out is that it's extremely crucial that you have good friendships in order to get truth. You know, you need a certain kind of friendship, a healthy friendship where someone is concerned about your good as well as you being concerned about their good. It seems like right now, this is me adding on here and, but it seems like for a good friendship, you've got to have empathy, right? You've got to be able to understand your friend and their perspective, how they see things. And likewise, they need to be able to do the same for you.
0: Yeah. I mean, in lieu of empathy, you're probably just a sociopath and, and you're faking it. I mean, empathy is just really super important just to interact, to get along, to, to understand how other people are taking things and, 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 uh, and how they're feeling, how they're responding. So definitely empathy is hugely important in that.
1: Right. Now and I I do have a question about you know this idea that empathy is required to view something from another person's perspective. I I think that's true. I guess what I'm thinking about is how important is it that we be able to view something from another person's perspective in making good decisions? Because on the one hand you think you might think, well, if a decision I'm making only concerns myself, how important is it I is it that I view something How important is it that I view something from someone else's perspective? But I think I've just answered my own question here, right? Your decision may only be concerned with yourself, but given that your decision might be viewed by others in various ways and how they perceive your decision could affect how they treat you, for that reason, it can be important to know how people perceive things.
0: Yeah, I think it's very important when you're when you're sort of trying to intuit someone else's perspective or why they got to that perspective and you're trying to sort of project yourself into, into their point of view. If, if the person is, is really close by they're their friend, there's someone you can count on there's somebody you can pick up the phone and talk to. You don't have to have to try so hard to project yourself into their set of circumstances because you can simply ask them. Why do you feel this way? What what sort of things are you seeing from your point of view that I can't see? Um tell me about it. Explain that to me. Teach me. Tell me why you, tell me why you feel that way. Why do you see it that way? So it's more about I think sort of in in absence of being able to have that uh interaction with a person that ha- being able to empathize with them, you can sort of project yourself into what what they might be dealing with, what they might be hearing seeing, feeling, and all of those things that are part of empathy. Sometimes you do that um, when you're trying to project yourself into like a grouping of people where you can't just ask them all their opinions because, uh, or their perspectives, because it's just too large of a group. So rather than try and ask them all, you're using empathy to sort of project yourself into their situation and, and imagine what they're seeing, feeling, hearing all of those things.
1: Right. Yeah, you know, and so you know, McIntyre. One of his points was that to form these good friendships, right? He's going to say you've got to have the virtues, right? So, in other words, you can't be a sociopath and be be a good practical reasoner, right? Because if a sociopath, right, isn't able to empathize, isn't able to take on other people's perspective, then they're not going to be able to see. You might say all the data points, and so their ability to reason practically is going to be stunted in significant ways you know, there's a question i think for a lot of people well can't you be an extremely rational person but not be moral and oh, granted this is a big debate <laughs> uh i'm not an expert in the sense of you can trust me on this <laughs> right um uh, the the truth isn't clear cut on this but i'm persuaded by the idea that to truly be a fully rational practical reasoner it is important to have the moral virtues, right? To be a moral person, right? To have the right amount of compassion for others, to care about their well-being, not just your own. So I just find this an interesting idea here, and I saw, I see the connection at least between Ray's point about you know empathy is required for viewing something from other's another person's perspective, and you know, McIntyre's point that to be a fully practically rational person, you need to have the virtues
0: that's great, and I think that's a perfect place for us to end this episode of the podcast. I just want to um, sort of leave with everyone maybe a, a an ask for you to think about and reflect on the last sub level principle in uh, in the book here that, that we're discussing in this, uh, in this particular section on practicing open-mindedness, radical open-mindedness, that says to be clear on whether you're arguing or seeking to understand. Um, reflect on that. Reflect on that in your daily life. Maybe reflect on that before you're entering into uh, one of these conversations when you're where you're going to be sharing information and trying to make a decision. Uh, because as we come back in our next episode, we're going to be talking about principle 3.3, which says that we should appreciate the art of thoughtful disagreement. And uh, this sub-level principle on understanding whether you're arguing or seeking to understand is one of the things that can help us with that mid-level principle. So we'll leave it there for this episode. Thanks, Micah. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles, at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals.